Hello and welcome to Dairy Pod. I'm John Penry from Dairy Australia. Some of the most innovative, world-leading research is taking place in plant breeding within the Dairy Bio Project. This includes producing more resilient pastures for our changing environment through to increasing forage quality through a combination of genomic selection and modern gene editing technologies. In this episode, Dairy Taz Regional Extension Officer Liz Mann is joined by Dairy Bio Senior Researcher Dr. Dan Eisenegger to discuss the genetics of forages, current research findings, and future potential for a more sustainable and profitable industry. Today we are joined by dairy bio researcher Dan Eisenegger. Dan has been working within the plant sciences and biotechnology research area for just over 25 years. In the latest round of the Dairy Bio Research Program, which commenced in 2021, Dan has been involved with plant gene editing to improve the herbage quality of various forage species. I'm really looking forward to my chat today with Dan and what he's been working on, as it's actually quite an interesting area. Dan, I mentioned in the introduction that you are doing plant genetics research. This is a space you've been working in for quite a while now, and I'm guessing you've seen a lot of change over that time. So probably a good place for us to start might be a quick run through of how you got to where you are presently and the changes that you've seen in plant genetics space over time. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Um, it's a great pleasure to be given this opportunity to discuss our dairy biowork. I've seen enormous and exciting changes during the time I've been working in plant size, plant sciences and biotechnology. Uh, in my early career with AgVic, I was very fortunate to be involved with exciting developments in genetic engineering of plants, which we used to study host, host pathogen interactions and develop novel viral disease resistance in crops like potatoes. Yeah, after this period of time, I did my uh, PhD in molecular plant pathology at University of Melbourne and then uh, started working on some commercially funded genetic engineering projects with cereals. I've also uh, done a short stint in the commercial sector as a business manager of a small seed company before moving back to research. Uh, in my cu current role now, I'm a senior research scientist with Agriculture Victoria Research. Um, I'm based at, Agri at the Agri-Biocentre for Biosciences in Bandura. Uh, I work on the development and application of new breeding technologies such as gene editing, um, particularly for dairy bioprojects to improve uh, forage quality. One of the um, most exciting developments uh, recently uh, is being able to use new gene editing uh, techniques like clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats or CRISPR for short. So from now on in, we'll just call it CRISPR. That's why we Sounds call, good. That's why we love acronyms. And this is probably one of the biggest, most cutting edge technologies that's come out in recent times. And and it's and it's really an exciting opportunity for me and for us to to apply this to crop improvement. I'm so glad you explained what CRISPR means there, Dan, because I've often wondered what that actually what those letters stand for. Now I know, and we're going to keep calling it CRISPR, I do feel. So you're specifically here today to talk to us about the research that's happening within intergene editing of plants. We will go into the exact project details in a bit, but when you are out and about with people who don't regularly look at plant genomes, how do you describe what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, this is always a tough one for me when I meet people and, and how much detail do I need to go into? I mean, usually I explain to people that my job involves improving plant performance using advanced breeding technologies. 
And if, if, if there's any sign of interest, I may then elaborate with an example such as forage grasses and specify what exactly we're trying to improve. And in an, in probably the best example for this is that, you know, working with forage grasses uh, currently and looking at improving herbage and nutritional quality that will result in uh, better animal productivity and better milk production. Um, and, and how we go about this is by using gene editing technology to switch certain genes off and improve undesirable traits that can make grass harder to digest. So then I have to explain, so when we increase digestibility, we make more energy available to the animals and this converts to higher milk and meat production. Yeah, so I mean, often then the conversation to go on in it, and you know, I think it's important now to sort of realise that we often underestimate how important it is for agriculture industries to responsibly sustain production to feed the growing human population. Um, Australia is really privileged country. You know, we have a thriving ag industry and and healthy food and fibre supply, and and this is really a result of innovation enabled by investment in scientific research. And engineering, you know, and we need to do everything we can now if if we're going to meet our climate change goals and keep agriculture sustainable and have enough food to feed a growing world population. Yeah, and you're right, Dan, we are very privileged in where we live in Australia and we're also very privileged that we can do this sort of research to help improve um, our farms and ensure that they're profitable into the future. Just with the gene editing, you mentioned switching genes on and off. I can't imagine you're out there flicking a light switch. Um, and I also, are you out there with a pair of teeny tiny scissors snipping away at the genome and cutting them out? How, how does it work Like when you're dealing with such small things? You know, that's a really good analogy, the teeny tiny scissors and trying to, how do we explain this? Well, you know, for gene editing, obviously we have our tools, they're in the lab. And uh, these tools uh, can be delivered into our plant cells. We have, you know, equipment in the lab. Uh, we can culture cells in the lab. And uh, and we use these tools and they're called gene constructs. And these gene constructs, when they, when they go into the plant cell, they um, allow the cell to make new enzymes that we call endonucleases, which are our genetic scissors, literally. So we program these endonucleases or scissors to cut the DNA in very specific places uh, in the gene to cause the modification we are interested in. So DNA breaks happen naturally all the time. So cells have the machinery to repair broken DNA. So when we make a cut, this machinery is deployed to repair the broken DNA. This natural machinery occasionally can make mistakes and this results in small permanent changes to the DNA sequence of the gene. When we induce these changes, they are called gene edits. But when nature does this, and it happens all the time, and in that case, they, they are called mutations. So the type of mutations we're typically interested in are small deletions of DNA sequence which can in inactivate or change the gene function. Just to go further, I mean, this is done obviously in a very controlled way in the laboratory. Uh, for example, we can target the genes we know may be responsible for undesirable traits or beneficially change how the plant produces certain metabolites or even manipulate how plants respond to stress and disease. 
We've considered that gene edited or mutant plants are no different to conventional mutation breeding techniques that have been used for over 100 years. The key advantage that we have now with these new breeding technologies like CRISPR is that we can control and direct which genes we can change instead of creating a whole bunch of random mutations throughout the genome. It really is now about precision mutation breeding. And like with all types of breeding, we generate populations of edited plants that are then screened and characterised for attributes we're interested in. So then a lot of substantial testing and stewardship processes are put in place to ensure that we only release safe and better performing plants to benefit consumers, uh, the industry and the environment. So tell me, how do you know with those genetic plants um, or genetic edited plants, how do you know the gene that you wanted has been changed. How do, how do you figure that out before you, you know, a long way down the track? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, it is quite a, an ex extensive process that we go through. So with forest species, it will take several years to make the first initial population of gene-edited plants. And the process relies on having uh, plant tissue culture systems that are carefully optimised for different species. Um, recently, just just, uh, just to mention, we've established new systems um, for application to elite and commercial varieties and temperate ryegrass. So once we've established this initial plant population, we then do a series of molecular analysis tests, such and that's things like PCR and DNA sequencing. So that tells us where we've done the gene edit. So these plants uh, tell us where, you know, that they've been edited and exactly where the edits where the edits are. And this then allows us to choose the specific plants we wish to keep. So for each gene, we generally make hundreds of plants and we screen them for the presence of intended gene edits, as not all of them will have it. Once we identify and characterise a gene edit with DNA sequencing, we can easily track it using molecular tests. This tracking is no different to how molecular breeding techniques are now used for breeding new crop varieties. So once we have plants with the right gene edits, we then test and compare them to unedited plants. This tells us if the gene edit has resulted in a desirable functional change and beneficial attribute we can observe in the plants. Once we see our gene edited plants pass a series of tests and produce a valuable phenotype or trait, that is when we start to get excited and then we pass these plants through the stringent uh, regulatory processes towards commercialisation. So we're hoping to be the first in the world to generate gene-edited forage grasses for commercialisation. Oh, that's a bit exciting. You mentioned a word there that I always do like to just explain to me, uh, to people, because um, it took me a little while to figure it out, phenotype. When you're talking phenotype, what does that word mean? Okay, so in this context, a phenotype means um, improved herbage quality or improved digestibility. So in our case, we can use methods like the NIR analysis that you know growers may use uh, with with a commercial with a commercial testing company, or we can test it with the wet chemistry uh, capabilities that we have within AgriBio as well. Which um, so this is basically measuring. Uh, Digestibility, ADF, NDF, so neutral detergent fibre, acid detergent fibre, um, and and the types of lignin in plants as well. Yeah. So you're you're seeing the gene what 
what you're saying is that you're looking for the plant is showing the change that's happened genetically. Yeah. With you've mentioned a couple of times about the regulation. Um, what is the regulations within Australia for these future plants? Um, okay. So uh, I'm always going to try and produce a bit of a preamble with with some of these questions and and some of the things I find is that with gene editing technologies um they're just it's just like mutation breeding and mutation breeding is proven safe and has been used for around 100 years so the gene edit or mutant forage plants we're still creating a a recognizes what they call site-directed nuclease type 1 organisms. There's another acronym for you, SDN1. And they will not be classified as a GMO, and therefore they won't be regulated by our Federal Office of the Gene Technology Regulator in Australia. So basically, these SDN1 plants will only have small deletions of DNA from a gene that impacts forage digestibility and will not have additional DNA or transgenes uh, that are in GMOs. And that's, that is the difference there. there that is a the deletion. Yep. Yeah. We're Other taking means. away a, a few nucleotides, a few bits of their code in a gene. Uh, we don't add anything new. Yep. And these type of, and the reason why we relate to these in mutations and mutation breeding is because these these types of mutations can occur naturally anyway. Yeah, you're essentially speeding up the process rather than you know breeding and then having to select the plant with the deletion. You're you're speeding that process up by using this. Yeah, the technology does have the ability to help speed. The development and in, in integration of traits, uh, if they're if they're because you you can work with it in your uh, breeding germplasm. Yeah, yeah. So specifically within the dairy bio project, what are you using this technology to work on and develop? Yeah, so um, currently we're working with perennial ryegrass and Italian ryegrass that we have in our dairy biogene edit projects. Um, and of course, as we just mentioned and alluded to, we're interested in improving digestibility and uh, metabolizable energy, which comes as a result of improved digestibility. So the results we have so far are very encouraging. Um, we've successfully created gene edits with evidence for improved herbage quality. Um, our future work will focus on validating the changes we see, such as showing an increase in digestibility, selecting suitable lines, and breeding the gene-edited alleles to produce the first batch of seed that we can make available for commercial breeding programs. So we've still got a little bit more validation to go, but we're we're getting close with with these species, you know. And we're also about to expand this work across a whole new range of temperate species, such as coxfoot and lucerne, and also some warm season forages. And uh, this is to provide more options for pasture that may be better suited to future climates or regions outside the normal range of ryegrass. Um, part of the thought is to safeguard the industry, as although ryegrass is the most nutritious pasture grass today, it may be less productive in some dairy uh, regions in the future. 
And on the flip side, other hardy forages like coxfoot, which are expected to be better suited to future environments, um, may have less digestibility now. So it sort of makes sense for us to improve the herbage quality of these species too and to provide our farmers with more options uh, for their farming systems. And that's that's so important that we are working now for what's needed into that future. When you're talking herbage quality there, what exactly are you doing? Is it like boosting the ME or dropping the amount of lignin in the plant? What what are you doing? Yeah, um, so we know from overseas and our research, our own research here over the years, that um, if we reduce or change the composition of lignin in plant cell walls, they will become more digestible digestible. So a small percentage reduction or change in the lignin composition is enough to increase digestibility and make more energy available, which in turn results in increased milk production if you're a dairy. So um, these traits can also be measured and associated with a reduction in neutral detergent fibre and acid detergent fibre. I think I mentioned that before. Um, and so for us as gene editors, we we then target, you know, we're interested in targeting genes that are associated with the lignin biosynthesis pathway. And there's a lot of them. So we've got to find the right ones. We And that, that work's been done over the years where there are, you know, the usual sorts of genes that we, we're familiar with that we know should provide us with the outcome that we're after. So, um, so I mean, all in all, what it really does also is it allows us to improve the nutritive quality of the pasture. And, and this is also known to potentially reduce methane emissions, which is an additional benefit. So for the future, we're exploring other gene editing strategies to further improve herbage and nutritional quality, uh, metabolizable energy, pasture resilience, and, and reduce methane emissions. With the lignin in the plant, that is the structural building block of that plant. If we reduce the amount of lignin in that plant, what effect does, apart from, I mean, obviously increases the amount of energy that's available, but what effect does that have on the plant itself? Like, can it still stand up? Yeah, of course. Um, so th that's that's all the past research uh, that's been done where we found, we found that um, – that if you target particular genes in the species of interest, like in our case, perennial ryegrass, Italian ryegrass, that there shouldn't be any what we call pleiotropic effects that will create some kind of penalty um, to the plant. So we might have improved one thing, but then we've taken away something else. So the plants still stand up. We don't take away all the lignin. It's only a small change in the structure, and sometimes it's just the composition. There's three main monomers, S, G, and H. I'll just call them that for now because they're big, long chemical names. Um, and generally speaking, we just try and improve the S-G ratio. So less S and more G. And the plant still maintains its structure. Um, but becomes more digestible because these these components are the things that the animals, you know, have to digest longer. You mentioned um, that you're doing genome work with warm seasons varieties. Now, this is quite interesting because quite often we, we don't think of those um, in dairy context, but um, even and even when we look at commercial sales of pasture seeds in Australia and worldwide, ryegrass is the dominant species. Um, and the warm season varieties are a lot less. But, you know, why are you spending time there now 
in addition to the ryegrass. Yeah. So, you know, we're spending um, effort on these species to safeguard the industry by developing options that may be better suited to future climates or to regions outside the normal range for ryegrass. Um, you know, we totally understand ryegrass is number one. Um, although ryegrass is the most nutrition nutritious uh, pasture today, it may be less productive in some dairy regions in the future that, you know, we anticipate that future warmer climates and, and climate change impacts can occur. And, uh, and then in the, these regions, you know, it's anticipated that, you know, ryegrass won't perform as well as as um as it does now. So, so right now it, we're sort of really thinking ahead, which is great. It puts us in a better position. One of the other triggers that made us interested in warm season varieties is is recent climate change modelling that's been done, and and it's predicted that a lot of areas in Victoria will be impacted by by reduced productivity and performance with ryegrass. So. So this could also reduce the areas where ryegrass can be grown ultimately. So having other species available, uh, having alternatives um, needs to start now, that thinking, um, because you know, as as we've already alluded to, it's not a, it's not an overnight process to go through these um, um, technological changes in, in 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 improving our varieties. Yeah. And that that is so important that we are prepared. And I reckon there's probably quite a few farmers out there in the northern regions of Australia who would be very interested in what you've got coming. As you're branching out into these other species, um, can you implement the same processes into those species that you've already developed for ryegrass? So obviously you've got protocols that you can do with ryegrass and how you go about working with ryegrass. Can you do that with you know, these warm season varieties such as Rhodes and, uh, say, Ceteria or something. I can't remember what you're working on, Dan. Yeah, there's a few. I'll mention them. But one of the ones that we're working on now is Rhodes grass. We have a PhD student. So yep. to generally answer your question, it's yes, but we do require, we need to tweak our protocols um, generally to adapt to new species. It, it's not like there's a, a one-size-fits-all approach, but... At a, at a at a higher level, it does sound like that, but at the technical level on the bench, we do have to tweak a lot of things. But it's not impossible to do. It's just it's just part of uh, the process. So, um, you know, with our PhD study now with Rhodes grass, you know, our students um, been exploring establishing new gene edit- editing technologies to improve herbage quality. So we've also just started to explore and establish methods for lucerne and kikuyu as well. So they're the other species that have come up of interest uh, to us and and to the industry. Um, And like I think you mentioned before, some of the northern states may be able to benefit from from these improved varieties sooner rather than waiting for, for, um, you know, for the impact of climate change to occur. Yeah. And um, it's interesting you mentioned Kaikuya because um, I did some consultation work with farmers and that was one species that did come up that farmers were interested in knowing a bit more about and how they could make it more edible. Um, But if you haven't had a lot of work done in this area with the warm species, um, where have you had to start? Yeah. 
And and that that is really true. There has been very little work done with most of the warm species varieties. We often call them orphans because <laughs> you know they haven't they, they don't they haven't had a lot of work done compared to you know the bigger grasses like perennial ryegrass, Italian fescues, and uh, you know and if you want to compare to crops like wheat and everything else, it's it's not even close. So yeah, recently our PhD student. Um, yeah, she's been able to generate the world's first draft genome for rose grass, just recently published, I think just got accepted last week uh, in Frontiers in Plant Science. And um, and this will support and enable more innovative, informative breeding, such as genomic selection, um, but also support us in gene editing because now we've got access to a reference genome. We, and, and what she's also done is used uh, a... a tissue culture responsive or transformable line that we've we've um, recovered from screening uh, in early in her work so um, so we'll be able to directly use that for our genome editing as well oh that's very interesting if we don't have that genome sequence which you know that's very exciting for your um, PhD student to be getting her work published and you know having worked at the genome for Rhodes grass what does it mean for your work in the space if you don't have that already? Yeah well for us gene sequences are a prerequisite for gene editing and they have a really important role uh, in characterizing the gene edits and the plants we generate as well. So um, if basically what I'm saying is if we don't have the gene sequence, we can't gene edit it and we can't even test it afterwards because we don't know what we've done. Um, so essentially, we, you know, we, we're having a whole genome sequence then is, is even further enables us to broaden the scope to do what we call functional genomics, which enables us to learn more about how genes function and interact with one another. And then ultimately, if you're wondering why we would want to do that, well, ultimately this is, this is going to help us become more innovative and sophisticated in how we approach uh, improving agronomically important traits and optimise metabolic pathways for better animal nutrition. So having the ability to create whole genome sequence maps at relatively low cost is a big game changer for what we can do. Yeah. I guess um, particularly for the warm season stuff, if you're starting from such a long way back, I'm guessing it will take longer before we're able to see this in the market. How long might it be before farmers start to see the results of this research for sale in a bag of seed at their local rural merchandise store? Yeah, another another um, great question, Liz, with a very long answer. <laughs> Look, generally speaking, it takes about three to five years for us to establish the processes needed to develop gene-edited plants and to fully assess the phenotype, or in this case, the digestibility of our gene-edited plants. Um, and it can take another one to two years to ensure that the gene-edited plants will then meet OGTR, which is the regulator requirement, so we can classify them as an SDN1 and not a GMO. Uh, and then, uh, so in total, you know, the research and development phase can be anything from five to seven years. But once, you know, we've generated the gene-edited plants, we've demonstrated that they're SDN1 um, and they can be passed on to a commercial partner to enter into the breeding program and they can be used to breed into new elite germplasm or they can um, 
enter directly into commercial seed production if they've been created in elite germplasm or commercial varieties. So these timeframes can take quite a few more years, um, and that's dependent on the commercial company, which I can, can't really speak for because, you know, I don't work at that for them. Um, but, you know, and I guess what a you're right. I mean, it, it is a bit of a road to get there, but um, but it's why starting now is so important. You know, mm. before before it becomes a an emergency, we we're sort of um, preparing ourselves for it right now. And when they're ready, they'll be ready. Yeah. Um, and I so guess I, mean, it's, mm, I guess it's better to be um, planned ahead and prepared for what could come in the future than not. Really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, research has been always the long game, right? You know, mm. no, yeah, there's the the kind of research that we do is is often, you know, not seen for quite some time. You know, yeah, and um, that is something that you know we've probably just taken the wind out of a few people's sail. They might have been getting a bit excited about you know mm. potentially improving the. Um, herbage quality and digestibility of kokuya out there. Um, and we've just brought them back to earth with a crash. Um, but, you know, it, it is important that we're starting this work now and getting that work happening. You mentioned there elite germaplasms, and that is something you are doing. You are working in the elite. So hang on, a germaplasm is what? The, the basically the elite seeds and elite um, genetics of the plant, um, and you're working with that. You're not working with um, varieties that are older. Is that correct? So it's more yeah. for market. Yeah, pretty much, Liz. I mean, it's it's of super importance for us now that we that we can that our work that can benefit industry in the shortest time possible. Um, and a lot of our work program is geared towards that. Um, you know, we are still limited, though, by needing to work within the natural life cycle or the breeding cycles or the biology of our forage plants. That's something that, you know, we we can't right now just change and speed up. I mean, that's how they, they are. Um, but, you know, when we look at and contrast to conventional plant breeding programs, you know, they can typically take over 10 years to release new varieties. Um, and history has shown us that at least in forages, there's been, you know, very little genetic gain that's been captured using the historical approach. Um, so having said that, now we do have strategies at reducing the time it takes for our innovations to reach the market. And um, as sort of mentioned before and and that one of our key developments is that we've been uh, recent. We've been able to recently establish our gene editing systems with elite and commercial varieties. So in the past, we would stick to old varieties, and you know there'll be um, and and that these can take longer to breed out the bad genetics, if you like, and um, capture the good genetics into elite programs. So this eliminates the need to undertake numerous steps in getting our technologies to market, and it means that we'll have solutions ready earlier than before. And one of the, the best examples that we've got right now that's come out of the Dairy Bio program is that we've adapted our gene editing systems to um, one of the ryegrass GSS lines from the Dairy Biogenomic Selection breeding project and and this is really a big real value add where you know where we've got new improved ryegrass germplasm that's developed from our genomic selection program and it's also going to be further enhanced with our gene editing 
technology as well. So having these traits in elite germplasm from the beginning also gives breeders a better base to start from. So we expect that this will enable a faster route for um, commercial outcomes as, you know, working with older, less productive varieties will, that will increase the time required to breed these new traits into varieties. So right now, Liz, I think we're pretty much on track. You know, we've a lot of our results are pointing out that we're on track with our rye grasses in improving our herbage quality by by at least fifteen percent. Um, that was the target, you know, that was given to us. Um, so far, we think that still remains to be realistic. So the combination of having the genomic selection and the gene editing uh, technologies. Um, can increase the genetic gain tremendously and by working with existing commercial varieties, the constraints to path to market uh, will will be greatly minimised as well. That's great, Dan. Um, and it's really, it's interesting to know, like we do have, it is a long thing and you we are dealing with biology. We can't, the thing with biology is it'll always throw something at you that changes. Um, so, you know, it is a long path to market, but there is things that are coming that people will see. We might wrap it up at that. Um, and it has been fantastic chatting to you and just understanding, you know, how important it is that we are prepared for future challenges from climate and, you know, how the how our research through the work you're doing within the um, Dairy Bio Dairy Bio Foragers program is helping set our businesses up for the future to still be sustainable and still be profitable. Um, and it's been exciting to hear about how you're applying cutting edge gene technology, so the CRISPR stuff, um, to improving our quality of forages that are available. So thank you for your time, Dad. I have really enjoyed chatting to you about this and we'll catch up with you in another time in the future. Thanks, Liz. You can find out more about the Dairy Bio Research Program at www.dairybio.com.au. We've also placed a link to this website in the episode notes. We hope that you have enjoyed this Dairy Pot episode and if you have any suggestions or ideas for future episodes, you can get in touch with us by emailing dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now. 